Messianic betrayal is what I've titled the message here tonight. In Psalm 41, we have yet another Psalm of David. Of course, David wrote half the Psalms, or at least half the Psalms are accounted for uh, with David. But uh, as he writes a, another uh, Psalm here, it intersects again with the coming Messiah, the greater David. And in many respects, the experiences of David often foreshadow that of the son of David, the, the greater David, if you will. In Psalm 41, we have an experience of betrayal in David's life that mirrors that of Jesus being betrayed by Judas. Few things are more difficult, uh, hurtful, uh, traumatizing than betrayal. Uh, we know this uh, really foreshadows Jesus' experience with Judas because Jesus specifically applied Psalm 41.9 to his experience with Judas. So we're not left to wonder there because he quotes this very, very psalm, this very verse, at least part of it. Valid prophecy is unique to the Bible. It's really a big deal. Prophecy is a really big deal. Only God knows the future. I know people want to claim they do, but they don't really know. Uh, knowing the future is unique to God. He knows the future. He controls the future. And so he's able to predict the future with absolute precision. Nobody else can do that. This is God's glory alone. And we read about God's glory in Isaiah. Whoops. I guess you're ahead of me. Sorry. There we go. Uh, Isaiah 42, 8 and 9. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And then the thought continues. Uh, what is this glory? Behold, the former things have come to pass. That which has previously been predicted has come to pass. And new things I declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He predicts the future. And really, this is one of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah, related to the Messiah in the surrounding context. So really, the theme is prophecy related to the Messiah in the greater surrounding context here. God's glory that he won't share with anyone else is that he predicts new things that have never happened. He tells us about them before they happen, and then they come to pass exactly as he has said. This is God's glory that he doesn't share with anyone else. That's why I say a prophetic faith is unique to the Judeo-Christian faith. It's unique among all the other religions of the world. There is no other truly prophetic faith in the world. You want a great evidence for the, the truth of the God of the Bible? Consider prophecy. In Amos 3.7, God says this, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. This is how God works. <coughs> what God is doing in the world is no secret. He first reveals it. And then he brings it to pass. And that's true of Israel. It's true of the Messiah. It was true of his first coming. It's true of his second coming. It was true of the forerunner, John the Baptist. And it was true of Judas, the betrayer. Which is the prophetic emphasis that we find here in Psalm 41. There are at least five Old Testament prophecies that either directly or indirectly speak to the betrayal by Judas. 
Uh, note uh, these references here. Uh, Judas portrayed in the Old Testament. Uh, we really believe, as David is describing what's going on here, it relates to this, this friend of his, uh, advisor, called Ahithophel. He was a type of Judas. So if that's true, then 2 Samuel 17 is really a, a, a portrayal of a type of Judas. Uh, Psalm 41, what we're studying tonight, is mentioned in John 13, 18, the betrayal uh, of Judas. And then uh, Psalm 55, similarly, uh, betrayal of Judas portrayed. Uh, Psalm 109, 8 and 9, judgment of Judas. And then Zechariah 11, uh, where Jesus, is, it is prophesied he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The context of Psalm 41 is probably when David was fleeing from his son Absalom. And in that context, he was betrayed by his friend and trusted advisor named Ahithophel. Uh, let's uh, look at the outline here for just a moment of Psalm 41. In verses 1 through 4, we have God's care of the compassionate. And then in verses 5 through 9, enemies that don't care. 10 through 12, God's merciful care. And then the doxology at the end of the chapter. Let's pick it up, Psalm 41. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. David begins by kind of the premise that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to care about the poor, the vulnerable. Those that are in a position where they don't have uh, the resources they need. And uh, so he begins by reflecting on that truth that God blesses those who are considered of the poor, which he, right now at this point, finds himself in that position. The word poor has the basic meaning of low, and it refers to those who are brought low or humbled by circumstances that leave them weak or helpless. Thus, the poor are vulnerable, and in that condition, they look to God. It's understood that he's talking about people of faith. And those used of God to help them are blessed, is his premise. Blessed is he who considers the poor. Moody Bible Commentary at this point says, uh, Worship should be expressed in obedience to the second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Had to bring that in in light of the morning sermon, right? <laughs> uh, in this regard, though, in terms of caring about uh, people that are vulnerable, and uh, they're in a position where they've been humbled, uh, by circumstances. I think you do reap what you sow, as the Bible says. And David sees himself in this category as one who has been sympathetic to the poor and now is in this position of weakness. And therefore, because of how he has treated others, he is believing that God is now going to bless him for it. The Lord delivers those in time of trouble who have themselves been considered of the poor. It's not just talking poor financially. Again, I think he's talking about situations, circumstances where you are in a very uh, needy position, a very vulnerable position. Verse 2, The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sick bed. Note these words, preserve, deliver, strengthen, and sustain. David is believing that God is going to bless him in this way and honor him for his past compassion towards the poor. Verse 4, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul. It's really hurting. 
for I have sinned against you. Now, remember the context here. We think that in this context, David was on the run from his son Absalom, who had conspired against him. And this really was a consequence of David's horrendous sins involved in his sordid affair with Bathsheba. Not only the adulterous affair, but then the murder of Uriah the husband, and the lies and the cover-up and all that was involved in that sordid mess. And even though he was forgiven, and he was, yet there remained lifelong consequences. We know in 2 Samuel chapter... Okay. There. 2 Samuel chapter 12. uh, When Nathan the prophet confronted David, he said there, as as David is, uh, you know, it is I, he's admitting his sin, and he says, you're forgiven, you won't die. But that didn't mean there wouldn't be consequences. Uh, 2 Samuel 12, 10 and 11, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. This is exactly what Absalom did. He did this very thing, which was to show, I am now the man, I've now got the women, and and all of that. Now, when David says, I have sinned, he may well have in view the terrible sins that have resulted in the consequences that he is now experiencing. And in that contest, he asked for healing. Now, David had earlier, as I say, repented and was forgiven, but there were still long-term consequences, and, and David is now asking for mercy and healing. Let's see here. Okay, I got this long quote from William MacDonald. Not all sickness is a direct result of sin in a believer's life. Uh, Many of the ailments of older people, for example, are part of the normal processes of deterioration due to age. Sometimes, however, there is a direct link between sin and sickness. And where the faintest possibility of this exists, the believer should rush into the Lord's presence in a heartfelt confession. In, in all such cases, the great physician's forgiveness should preclude, or precede, that is, precede the local doctor's remedies. Sometimes the issue is not merely a medical diagnosis, but at core is really a spiritual issue. And yet that's not always the case, and sometimes, you know, we, we don't always know. But certainly, if we're not right with the Lord, we should get right with the Lord. Everything should start there. Verse 5 My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die? And and his name perish. And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. I mean, David's enemies here are quite anxious for him to die and be forgotten. You know, that's where you know you got a real enemy, when they really do wish you were dead. (laughs) And that's what you got going here. Uh, They pretend to be a friend in in visiting him. Uh, Notice verse 6, he comes to see me and he speaks lies. So they show up and act like they have a sincere interest in him. 
but they don't. They're really wanting to gather information that they can use against him. These haters have a whispering campaign against him as they maliciously spread lies and they seek to harm him. They're really kind of prophets of doom, hoping he will die and we're spreading misinformation, claiming he's on the way out. And then worst of all, verse 9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, in John 13, Jesus quoted part of this verse in reference to his imminent betrayal by Judas. And we read there in John 13, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now, I tell you before it comes that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. David acutely felt the sting of this betrayal. And the reason it was so hurtful is because it came from a very trusted friend. It came at the hand of a close friend who had proved now to be an enemy. That really hurts. Uh, This was a close friend that he had trusted. They ate together in close fellowship together, sharing heart to heart. You know, uh, people that you really are close to, that you really trust, you share kind of what's going on in your heart. And then when they turn on you and they stab you in the back and betray you, that's very hurtful. Now, this former friend had turned on David. And that's one of the worst hurts in life. Betrayal is very treacherous. It's very harmful and hurtful. Again, most believe David here speaks in reference to his experience with Ahithophel. And we read in 2 Samuel 16, Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. Boy, I mean, this was very respected counsel. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and then with Absalom as well. Had that kind of clout. David had the highest regard for Ahithophel. I mean, he was a trusted advisor put a lot of stock in him. But then when Absalom conspired to rebel against David and take the kingdom for himself, Ahithophel betrayed David and went and followed Absalom in his rebellion. And we read about this in 2 Samuel 15. So back up just one chapter there. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered And went barefoot. So he's like in a state of brokenness here. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. So it's a a broken type of a context here. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel, you know, your trusted advisor is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This was his prayer at this point. We really believe that Psalm 55 probably intersects with this uh, as well, this, this whole situation. Psalm 55. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from it. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. 
This phrase, lifted up his heel against me, is really an idiom signifying deceitful betrayal. Uh, William MacDonald writes, Of all the sorrows of life, this is certainly one of the bitterest. To be betrayed by one who has had close associations with you. And I'm sure on some level or another, we've all known someone that has betrayed our trust (laughs) on some level or another. Judas was one of the 12 apostles, one of the chosen 12, personally chosen and appointed by Christ. He had the most privileged position of all. I think the greatest position that anyone has ever had as far as a privileged position in the world was to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. To personally walk with him and be with him day in and day out for those three years of his ministry. He had a front row seat in the ministry of Christ. The privilege to personally be with Jesus and enjoy intimate fellowship with him. Like few others for a period of three years. Judas was one along with the other apostles. Who was endowed with special miraculous working powers over sickness and over demons. He had that kind of power working through him. He was trusted to the point where he was put in charge of the money box of the group. But Judas really was all in it for Judas. For him, it was really not about Christ. Uh, He was all in as long as they were proclaiming the kingdom is at hand with the evidence of kingdom miracles being performed. Oh yeah, that's a movement you want to be a part of. But as soon as Jesus transitioned from talking about the kingdom to talking about the cross, Judas then decided it was time to get out while the getting was good. And we might as well get a little money on the way out too. And so he moved to betray Christ for whatever he could get out of it, which in the end was 30 pieces of silver. In spite of all the firsthand evidence, he didn't really believe in Jesus. He never really got it. For some people, it really doesn't matter how much evidence, first-hand evidence, there is. The problem is they have a wicked, self-centered heart that makes it all about them and not about Jesus. Now, it should be noted that while Jesus quoted Psalm 41.9 as being fulfilled in reference to the betrayal of Judas, he omitted that phrase, in whom I trusted. You see, Jesus didn't trust Judas because he knew all along what he was about. In this, too, we see the precision of Scripture being fulfilled. In his ministry, in John chapter 6, 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. Devil like in character. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus knew it. In John 13, as we get very close, you know, the upper room before the the cross, Jesus said to him, and this is, of course, he's talking, uh, you know, a reference to Peter. He was bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. There is an exception. For he knew who would betray him. He wasn't clean. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. You haven't all had the the cleansing bath of salvation. Verse 10. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. 
<laughs> Interesting. A little bit of imprecatory feel here. The thought of David continues on now by asking God to mercifully raise him up again so that he as king might hold the perpetrators to account. And really, as the king in charge of the government, this was his rightful place, and he was rightfully the king. Now, when so many were deserting him, David looked to the Lord to raise him up again. And again, many think uh, that there may be an echo here of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was raised from the third day. Indeed, Jesus was raised up to be the judge of all, including Judas in the end. But we might ask, well, how did it end for the betrayer? Well, both Ahithophel and Judas ended in suicide. That's where they ended. I don't know if I need a new battery here or what. But anyway, 2 Samuel 17, 23. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey, arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself. And died and was buried in his father's tomb. So that's, that, that was the end of him. Went out and hung himself. Well, what did Judas do? Well, Matthew 27, 5. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, departed and went and hanged himself. Ahithophel is kind of a type of Judas. They both ended up suicide, hanging themselves. But in contrast to the betrayer Ahithophel, David was restored. And in contrast to the betrayer Judas, Jesus was raised up on the third day in total triumph and victory. Verse 11, By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. David connected God's rescuing favor, restoring favor, with him being pleased with him, not allowing the enemy to triumph over him. Now, this was a, a valley he was going through, but he really fully expected God to bring him through it victoriously. And he says in verse 12, As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Now some have wondered how verse 12, where David speaks of God upholding him because of his integrity, how does that square with verse 4 where David already has admitted that he has sinned? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, I take it that, yes, David recounts that he has sinned in the past and is suffering the consequences of that sin. And yet he has come to repentance, and he has gotten right with the Lord, and he knew that reality too. And since getting right, he has maintained a walk of integrity with the Lord. Uh, we find in his confession in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Seal it. Stop and soak that in. And then in the cross-reference, another the other psalm that he wrote in terms of his repentance, Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. He was thinking, I, God, I want you to use this. Uh, my experience, I want you to use it in the lives of other people. A past fall does not negate a walk of integrity going forward. Praise the Lord for uh, Psalm 130. Psalm 
3 and 4, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God knew David's sincerity, his integrity. And because of it, David says that he will now forever enjoy the presence of God. He says, you have set me before your face forever. How wonderful this is. People sometimes betray us. You can't always count on them to be there, but God will be there. He's always there. The famous preacher John Wesley, when he was dying, was surrounded with his, by his closest friends. And he called his friends close to him, and he said these final words. Best of all, God is with us. To be set before God's face forever is best of all. This is glory. This was David's expectation. Although the closest of friends had forsaken him, yet God was with him and would be with him forever. God told the priest to, to bless his people Israel in this way. Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And that brings us to the doxology, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. It's appropriate that David ends this psalm and this section of the psalms with this emphasis. You see, when he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, that, that phrase is really emphasizing God's faithfulness. People are not always faithful, but God always is. This is a doxology. It effectively closes out what is called book one, book one of the book of Psalms. There are really five sections in the book of Psalms that really correspond to the five books of Moses. And this is how it breaks down. Book one, Psalms uh, one through 41. Book two, Psalms 42 through 72. Book 3, Psalms 73 to 89. Book 4, Psalms 90 to 106. And then Book 5, Psalms 107 to 150. Each one of these first four sections conclude with a similar doxology, emphasizing the everlasting blessedness of God, the God of Israel, and then Amen. And then the final section, having the climactic doxology, Psalm 150, which ends with, Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Now, to bless the Lord God of Israel means to praise Him for being the faithful covenant God that He is. You see, Lord here, when it says, Blessed be the Lord, the word Lord here is Yahweh. That's God's covenant name, the most sacred name for God used by the Jews, really revealed by God to the Jews. And Yahweh is the idea of being unchanging. He is the eternal, unchanging God. And what that means when we think about God's nature is that His nature never changes. He's faithful. He's always steady. People are not, but God is. He's always faithful. Hence the reason He can be counted on. God is the Hebrew Elohim, which really is the idea of a, the supreme being who is over all. So this is the God of Israel. He is the eternal, unchanging, faithful God of covenant relationship who is supreme over all. And he is to be praised from everlasting to everlasting, which is to say 
forever. Amen is literally amen in Hebrew. Uh, it means so be it or it is true. Uh, a form of this word is used in Genesis fifteen six, where it says Abraham believed. Abraham amended God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Really, the idea of a belief is to affirm what God has said. A belief is taking God at his word. It's, it's affirming it. It's accepting it. It's true. It's amending it. And so this is really an affirmation of faith in God for who he is as the faithful, unchanging covenant God of Israel. Well, this is where David's trust was found in the midst of treachery. And if you haven't experienced it already, I'm sure there will be times when you go through some level of treachery. And, uh, you know, I know in my life that that's never a pleasant experience. It happens sometimes. But I think some of my closest times with the Lord and some of the deepest times I've known with the Lord are in those dark times. And I think that was true for David as well. Where did he find his solace? Well, his trust was found in God. Uh, you can't always trust people, but you can always trust God who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. He will never be unfaithful. He's, he'll never betray you. Uh, now, covenant theology would teach that he might, right? I mean, covenant theology says God made all these promises to the patriarchs and to Israel. But you know what? He has now said, okay, I'm sorry, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to spiritually fulfill that in the church, and I'm done with Israel. But if that's true... I don't think you can really trust God as Gentiles. If he did that to Israel, why would you Gentiles think he'll be all faithful to you? It's crazy theology to me. God is faithful. He can always be trusted. This is what his name Yahweh, his sacred name is all about. He's the covenant God, the loyal God who never changes. You can depend on him no matter what happens, no matter what other people or what people may do. He is ever faithful. Indeed, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer. I am weak, but Thou art strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to
together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We find strength in the word. Uh, Lord, David went through some very hard things. And Lord Jesus, so did you. You were in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, You as our high priest can sympathize with whatever we're going through. And Lord, we, we thank